0: These walls are funny. First, you hate them. Then, you get used to them. Enough time passes. You get so you depend on them. These are the words from Red, Morgan Freeman's character in the the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Red is a prisoner behind bars, and he's talking to his present inmates about how a former inmate, Brooks, is coping with life outside of prison, after being there for 50 years. Brooks' transition as a free man has been incredibly difficult. Though he is free, Brooks most certainly isn't comfortable in this new freedom. A half a century in jail had become all of the things that home is for Brooks. And so, listen to this, in a most sinister way, the desire for bondage back in the jail, is preferenced over true freedom. That the human heart could want such a thing, y'all, is not so crazy when you think about it. And Romans chapter 8 shows us that Paul knows this too. He has been saying for two chapters that those who have trusted in Christ really are new people. They are, to pull language from another one of his letters, ready? They are a new creation, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. And yet, though you and I, if we are in Christ, are really free from relating to God on the basis of our behavior, many of us, don't we? Many of us know what it is and what it is like, as it were, to be institutionalized by the system. We want to be back inside in the jail of performance-based spirituality. You hate the walls at first. But eventually you get, as Red says, so you depend on them. And so, though Christians really have been set free from the prison of performance-based spirituality, we're tempted to fall back under its reign. Think about it. Though we are really free from it, living a life where people always approve of us, right, is much more comfortable. If you've ever tasted it, if you ever know that, you know the sweetness of of people being happy with you. Though liberated from basing our worth on our performance, the allure of success really is nectar sweet, is it not? And in a thousand different ways, we can all answer this question if we're honest. Here it is. What do you love that is killing you? What do you love that's taking your life as it were? I know I can. What about you? We all have got good news for you tonight if you find yourself in that question in the face of our apparent helplessness. The Apostle Paul gives us a powerful word of hope, speaking to both our condition and our cure. He says it right here in verse 15. Did you see it? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Y'all, in other words, the death and resurrection of Christ for us has secured a new power in us to enable us to be able to live as free sons and daughters. And because we are now, in fact, these sons and daughters, Jesus gives us all that we need to live life on the outside, to live under life, to live life underneath God's gloriously free reign of grace. That is incredible good news. And so Paul tonight is going to show us two primary gifts, two primary gifts. To give us, that, he get, that, is given, that are given to us to enable us to live freely. And here they are. First, an internal help, an internal help, and then secondly, an eternal hope. That's my two headings tonight. An internal help and an eternal hope. Let's take a look, firstly, at this idea of the internal help. Well, Paul tells us that the greatest gift and greatest benefit of being a Christian is seeing that we have incalculable intimacy with God. It's something that most of us take for granted, that we've forgotten how sweet it is. But here's the point. We were once slaves, Paul tells us, and now we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. In short, y'all, this is what the Bible calls the doctrine, well, the doctrine what theologians call, call the doctrine of adoption. You see, where justification is the language of the courtroom, it feels dry and almost, like you've been declared righteous. Adoption, boy. The the language of adoption really is the language of the home. That we've been welcomed back in to the heart of God himself. Think about it. In the Roman world, if you knew anything about the Roman culture and about adoption in that world, adoption was a profound institution, incredibly benefiting the one that was adopted. When a benefactor had money and possessions but no heir, what he would do is that he would often adopt someone as a son to be the recipient of that estate that he had when he died. Immediately, though, immediately, the child was made a recipient of all of the blessings and the benefits of the family. They were now legally treated as a natural-born son. The son had freedom because he knew he could never, ever lose the love of his father. Now, some of you guys know about adoption because perhaps you yourself have been adopted. Some of you know what it's like to, to, to receive a new brother or a new sister or to have a new niece or a new nephew because you had seen somebody welcomed into that family. And the picture is, the picture is is one of immediate rights, immediate access. The family name is upon you. And that's what this doctrine is telling us here in these first couple of passages, first couple of verses rather. And y'all, this stands in direct contrast with the image of a slave. A slave was a member of the household workforce. They were in the house based on their performance, always living in fear that their master, if not pleased with them, would hurt them or harm them or cast them out. The difference between sonship, daughters, and what? A slave. It's very, very important. Here's why this is so important. Paul wants to get across that God gave us his spirit. You see it right here in these earlier verses of 14 and 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption. He mentions the spirit seven times in our text today. The spirit of adoption is what he is called. And this means that one of the roles that the Holy Spirit takes up, here it is, is to be an internal witness in your life, in your heart. It says He testifies with our very own spirits unto what? Here it is. That you are beloved of God. Isn't that sweet? Imagine if you woke up every day thinking, realizing, today I am loved by God. Today, no matter who I, no matter what I've done, no matter how much I've blown it or failed it, that today I wake up with my heavenly Father's smile upon me. How would that change your life if you began to actually do business with the doctrine of adoption? Y'all, this is the high point of our salvation, that you are God's children. This is amazing sauce, so to speak, right? And listen to what one writer, Sinclair Ferguson, puts, puts it. He says this, He says it like this. It's so beautiful. Our sonship and ladies, you're included in that. Okay, this. He's not being. He's he's just speaking corporately. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. The whole point of your salvation, the whole point of redemption, is that you might be brought in to the very heart of God. That's amazing, amazing stuff. Why would this matter? Well, firstly, it matters this. That this is not a privilege enjoyed by everybody. You know, there's talk in sort of these quasi-religious circles. You often hear it said this, that we're all God's children, right? Now listen, in a sense, that is true. We have been created by God. But but sonship, as Paul describes it here in Romans chapter eight and Galatians chapter four, is not, hear me out on this, it is not a birthright. It is a new birthright. It is not a birthright. It is a new birthright. Not everyone enjoys it. Who does enjoy it? The text tells us, verse 15. All who what? Receive it. All who receive it. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 say so the exact same thing. But for those who do, y'all, we have real power to help us to live faithfully in this world. And I want you to see this, that a few things... I'm going to put up a, a sh- screen here. Can we... Uh, Corner, will you do me a favor? That silver switch right there, will you just flip it down that light switch? I'm going to get a little bit more contrast because the next slide I want to show you shows a b- contrast. I'm going to walk us through it about ways that you can see if you are living as a slave or if you're living as a son. Ways that you can see what how you really understand this doctrine of adoption. Okay? I want to put it up here. If you want to take a photo of it, you can. It's kind of a lot to write, but you can you can have at it. Here we go. The orphan, there he is, right? The orphan right there. Oh, I love using the red thing. That's amazing. Orphan and the child. Let's take a look at this. The orphan, the slave, what is it, right? That he feels alone, lacks a vital daily intimacy with God, and is full of self concern. They're anxious over felt needs, relationships, money, and health. I'm all alone, and nobody cares, and I'm not a happy camper. They live on a succeed-fail basis. They need to look good and be right. It is complete performance orientation. They often feel guilty, condemned, and unworthy before God and others and has little faith, lots of fear, and always lives with the sense of I've got to fix this. That's the language of the orphan. What about the language of the son? The son or the daughter who knows the father's delight in him or her. Here it is has a growing assurance that God really is my loving Heavenly Father, that they trust the Father and has a growing confidence in His loving care. They learn to live daily, conscious partnership with God, and they're not fearful. They feel loved, forgiven, and totally accepted. Why? Because of Christ's merit really closed them. And they have a daily working trust in God's sovereign plan for his or her life. As loving, wise, and best. We're going to look at that next week. You believe that God is good. The idea here is perfect. The idea is a great picture of what we get to have in, uh, in what we have in Christ. Now, y'all, I just want to touch on a couple of benefits. These are signs. I want to talk about a couple of things that you have from the text in, uh, in which we can know we're adopted. Two things one, security and failure. You want to write that down security and failure. Because we are God's children and He is our Father, when we fail Him, we know we will never be cast out. That's what the doctrine of adoption tells us. That when one of my daughters, right, when she screws up, right? Imagine when she screws up, she spills her milk or something like that. How loving of a father would it be for me to say, you're cast out, banished forever from being being one of my children. No. What do I do as her father? I help clean up the milk and I say, you want some more? Right? Because that's the Father's heart for us. And if I'm a hack job of a dad, imagine what our Heavenly Father actually is to, to you and me. That's a beautiful picture. Security in failure. He reminds us by the Spirit, verse 16, that we are children of God. And secondly, this idea of intimate access. For those adopted by God, we no longer remain outsiders. Instead, we've been given intimate access into the life of a powerful person. Many of you know the name Rudolph Giuliani. How many ever know that name? Okay, great. Show my age. Awesome. Um, When he was inaugurated into his first term of being the mayor of New York City, Something amazing happened, y'all. You go watch this on YouTube. It's hilarious. He stood there taking oath before the judge. His wife was sitting here holding the Bible. His hand here swearing him in like this. It's amazing. But one of the funniest things began to happen. There was this boy standing right there beside him, mimicking everything Giuliani was doing. And when the judge went to shake Giuliani's hand, the boy stood stuck his hand up too so the judge would shake his hand. And then when he, Giuliani, was at the podium, the boy was right there on the side, like over here, Running his mouth like this, just kind of building his head, shaking his hand up like this. And the whole thing was hilarious. Now I was like, what is going on here? That boy, he's he's making a mockery of the address. He's interfering with everything. In this huge moment of decorum, where order was supposed to be upheld, a boy kept bothering the most powerful man in New York City. Why? Because it was his son. That was his dad. He had intimate access to his father. His father was not troubled by anything. Y'all, a simple question. Do you see yourself like that before God? Or is God continually displeased with you? Do you feel like your relationship with Him is like spiderweb thin? That at any moment it's just going to snap? Or do you know that God delights in you as a father does his child. That's what adoption, that is the doctrine of adoption. And it is a profound internal help that the Holy Spirit bears witness to our sonship and to our daughtership and it's meant for our good. That's a huge help for us as we begin to pull away from life from a performance-based religion. Secondly, the second point, we talked about an internal help and now I want to talk about an eternal hope. An eternal hope. Take a look with me. This is where stuff gets really good, and so I'm going to have to fly, but I love this part of the text. Paul is brutally honest about what living as adopted sons looks like. Is it glorious? Yes. But does that mean it's without suffering in this world? No, it doesn't. Didn't you see it in verse 17 where it says this? He says, "...and children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him." The point is, is that Christianity is not pie-in-the-sky religion. It deals with the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. And I actually think that's one of the most attractive things about Christianity. It's because it's real. It's real, y'all. But is suffering the last word? No. No, it's not. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to get us our eyes up off of the suffering for just a moment so that we can see the joy beyond the sorrow, as we often say around here, the joy beyond the sorrow, so that you can be helped in the moment. And here's where I'm going with this. Hang with me. Paul says, Yet, yeah, though we suffer, there is on the horizon something that every Christian has his or her eyes on. It's like the runner who gruelingly slogs to the finish line. So too the Christian can see his or her finish line. And what does Paul call that finish line? Personally, as it applies to us, he calls it our glorification. But more broadly, here it is, he calls it our hope, our hope, our hope. Now, when you hear the word hope, when you hear the word hope in the Bible, nine out of ten of y'all are not hearing it rightly. And here's what I mean. When you hear hope, you hear something about this internal wish that's rooted in uncertainty. Does that make sense? Like, I hope that we can have pizza tonight for dinner. But my roommate, she's kind of got this thing, and she doesn't like pizza, so I don't know if we're going to get it, right? That's what this means. You know, something like, or I hope that I get an A on my OCHEM test, right? That might be, that's a nice wish. That's a real nice wish. (laughs) Chances are, you're probably not going to make an A on your OCHEM test anyways, even if it's talking about in a sermon or not. The point is, though, is that it's an uncertainty. Now, some of you might. Some of you might, that's awesome. But here's the point. That's not what the Bible... That's not what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about hope. It's actually, y'all, talking about the opposite. It is talking not about an uncertainty. And I've put it this way. I think it's wonderful that hope, biblical hope, is this. It is confidence rooted in a future certainty. That hope in the biblical sense of the word is confidence rooted in a future, not uncertainty, but certainty. Y'all, it is a comprehensive vision for the future. So far, so good. Y'all hang with me? Certainty, not uncertainty. That's why it gets, it's getting better. Hang with me, okay? I promise you. So the horizon or the finish line to which all Christians are running is what Paul calls our hope. It is our vision of how life ought to be. And here's where we start getting into the stuff that happened last night. So we're going to apply that in just a second, okay? It's it's our vision of how we think life ought to be. Here's the point. All of us are living in a story. We're all living in a story. And that story has some end that you think is beautiful. That you love and that you've ordered your life after. And I could simply just say, what's the purpose of your life? Why are you living? People cannot live without an answer to that question. Whether you are somebody who is a Christian Or you're somebody that's not a Christian. Everybody, human beings are inherently hopeful beings. They need a hope. The people that can't live that way, they're called nihilists or nihilists. And they usually will either abandon their nihilism or they'll take their own lives. Because it's not livable. The point I'm trying to say here is that everybody has a hope. That's the horizon that we're on. That's my first point. Secondly, great, Ryan. All you've said so far is that everybody's got a hope. Here's the question. Does the Bible address any of the specifics of that great hope? And that's where Romans 8, chapter, I mean verses 23 through 25 come in and begin to blow your socks off. It's wonderful. Because what is it going to tell us about the specifics of some of that hope? First of all, here it is. Verses 21 and 23 show us this. That you and me, that the Christian story... Ends with those who are in Christ having renewed bodies. Renewed bodies. Though we die, though we decay, God at the resurrection will take our souls, which have gone to be with Him upon our death, and will reunite them with our bodies. Fully renewed, fully restored, perfected. Will you have that mole on your back? I don't know, okay? Will you be a size two? I'm sorry, I don't know. Will you finally be able to dunk? Hopefully, but I just, I can't tell you, okay? The point is our bodies, these bodies, these ones right here, grab your flesh. This body is going to be your renewed body in the Christian hope. That's staggering. No other religion gives you that. No other religion gives you that. This body. Secondly, is it just our bodies? Is it just our our flesh and bones that get remade? No. The text tells us something even more. What? Secondly, a renewed creation. A renewed creation. Verse 21, Paul says that at this very moment, y'all, the creation is in bondage and is groaning. It longs to be set free. And when we, you and me, those in Christ get our resurrected bodies at the resurrection. The entirety of creation will be liberated as well. For what? For us to live in with God forever. Jesus declared in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. And y'all want to know what the Greek for all things there means? You want to take a guess? All things. All things. That's what it means. Why is this so important? Why? Every square inch of creation. What's the big deal? First of all, some of us need to abandon an alternative, non-biblical vision of what resurrection looks like that teaches us that we live in a disembodied, non-physical, where we become these non-gendered cherub babies that sprout wings and sort of play harps our whole life as we float around on clouds. Like, that's the vision for the end of the Christian story. And I want to say it's anathema. It's not true. And so I think that you should abandon it. And so does the Bible and replace it with what the scriptures teach. And that is these bodies in this world remade. Some of y'all are going, what? I've never heard that in my entire life. I know that's why you're learning it tonight. And I want you to sit in it and I want it to move you because here's why. I've said this before. Y'all saw our Instagram picture today. Hopefully, you guys saw it. Beautiful picture. Mountains, sweeping lake. Awesome. New snow. Incredible. Some of y'all are going to go to some beautiful place over winter break. You're going to go ski or whatever. One of my favorite pastors, a man by the name of Darwin Jordan, says this. He says that the creation right now, because it's in bondage, it's like creation in a wheelchair. As beautiful it is, it's in a wheelchair. What's it going to be like on that great day when creation itself gets up out of the wheelchair and runs? That's the image. That's our great hope, y'all. The world being remade and our bodies being remade that we might live together for God forever in it. I mean, just think about Genesis chapter 1. God made us with bodies in a perfect world forever. And when Jesus says He's remaking something, He's not trashing it. He's making it beautiful again for you and for me. That is the Christian hope, y'all. That is amazing. Now, let's drive this home just a little bit in a few quick minutes. I want you to see that the Scripture goes to lengths to point this out to you, that you've got to get your imaginations going, not to see things that aren't real, but to see things that are very much real, just not in plain sight. Think of your mother's face. Is she right in front of you? No, you've used your imagination to do it. That's what Paul wants you to do when you think about your great hope as a Christian. This eternal hope that you have. Once forever, renewed bodies, renewed renewed world to live in forever. Why does this matter today? On Wednesday, November the 10th? The right ninth? Why does it matter? Here's why. Because I want to go back to what happened last night. Classic illustration point. It's perfect for us. I want you to see that the Christian vision of hope is so much bigger and so much better than anything any political candidate could ever give you. The political candidate can, at best, give you a vision for a reformed world, and Jesus gives you a renewed one. That's the vision. That's the vision that you get with the King of Kings. Last night, Jesus' throne, his seat was not open for re-election. He was sitting squarely on it all night long. Hallelujah. Right? I mean, the, the point the point is, is that he is the King of Kings. And because he is, it does not matter. It does not matter for Christians. It does not matter who are we, we're told over and over again. It does not matter if somebody is a Republican, a Democrat, a male, a female, a libertarian, whether they're gay, whether they're straight, no matter what race they are, no matter how old they are, it does not matter. Jesus is the king of kings, and he is the one that really rules, and he sits right now in his throne governing all things in accordance with his will for his glory and for your good. That's why we said my only comfort. Secondly, listen to what the psalmist says. Beautiful, here it is. Put not your trust in princes in a son of man whom there is no salvation. Some of y'all are having to eat crow because you've experienced in some way, and I don't mean just with this election, you've put your hope in people to try to rescue you and to try to bring about the vision for your life. And I want to say, it does not matter who your, who your figurehead is, it will fail unless it's Jesus. That's the point. Secondly, listen to what Psalm 39, 7 says. Ready? Here it is. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My what? My hope is in you. One thing remains certain. Jesus was not up for re-election last night. There was never a chance he was going to lose his seat. His kingdom shall have no end. He is our good king who rules with righteousness and justice and equity for all people. Therefore, I urge you, if you are a Christian, to live as a people who have this Romans 8 hope. Y'all, your friends desperately need you. We are essentially... Hoping beings. Everybody hoping for something. We have some vision how we want the world to work. What is the essence, the nature of what I believe to be a good life? Is it power, financial, or social? The reality is every vision outside of Jesus' kingdom is a vision for the good life that will fail. We will constantly be grasping at straws. And therefore, here's what I suggest to you. I suggest that you and I begin to listen to what the Apostle Peter says about how we ought to live in this world, and that is as exiles. Exiles. This is not our true home. Not this present one. We have a better home coming. A better better future. A more glorious kingdom that Christ says right now is groaning as a woman groaning in labor with words you can't even express that the whole creation longs for the redemption of our bodies so that we might inhabit it again. That's the world that we're, in, that we're going to. And death, one short sleep past, John Dunn says, will come and pass and then it will be there. That's, the, that's your hope. And we don't like to think of that that much, but that's your story. Lastly, I want to say this. I want to say this. I read this quote from a friend of mine. His name is Scott. Scott wrote a blog article, and I can probably link you to it if you want it. Listen to his closing sentiments here. He says this. He said, Indeed, Jesus did not come to take office or to take sides. He came to take over. Therefore, two things. If you are despairing over the outcome of this election, pause and exhale. We only need, and we already have, one Messiah, and he did not lose the election. And if you are breathing a deep sigh of relief over the outcome of this election, keep perspective. We only need, and we already have, one Messiah, and he did not win this election either. He is still on his throne. My closing thought for you is this. Last night was also... A 10 year anniversary for a big event. Most of you don't know it. But 10 years ago, a man was out in Greenville, South Carolina, was out riding bicycles with his, three, with his children. And in a horrible accident, he came, out, came up over the handlebars of his, accident, of his bicycle and uh, went into a, He had an accident without his helmet and he uh, had a concussion and he ended up going into a coma for about six months. And he passed away. Who was that man? That man was the first campus minister of RUF at TCU. His name was Dustin Salter. And you guys are the legacy of his ministry. You're sitting in this room right now because of what he started. And here's what's beautiful. His wife, my current pastor, Brian Davis, and another friend of ours named John, were in the room when Dustin passed away. And as he breathed his last breath, our friend John who is a Christian with great authority in his voice stood up out of the chair with tears in his eyes and pointed directly at Dustin's body and said we will see that body again we will see that body rise again y'all know where the most busiest places are going to be across the world at the resurrection of the dead don't you It's not going to be in the middle of the city. Graveyards everywhere are going to be throwing parties because the dead will rise to new life. Is that your hope? Do you believe that? If not, I ask you whatever you believe in to abandon it and embrace this one here. It's unlike anything else you've ever seen. And it's meant to be given to you so that you will experience the real freedom that comes by life in the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you love us, that you care for us, and that you give us this profound hope that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, to remake us, and to remake a world for us to live together forever with you. Hallelujah. That is staggering news that that makes everything else seem like junk because of how beautiful it is. I pray that you would stir our hearts and that would change us to live more faithful lives to you and that we might be a blessing to the world around us, that we would love our enemies like you have because of this wonderful, wonderful gospel message. We pray that now for these students who are struggling, some who are hurting, some who are very confused about their future. And I pray the Apostle Paul, by your spirit, would get into their heart this glorious picture of our real hope, that we have an eternal hope and an internal help that makes life livable. We lift this all up in your name. Amen.